0: Hello, my darling creative, and welcome to another episode of The Unplugged Creative. I'm recording this into my iPhone today because I'm working in New York this week and I completely forgot to bring my microphone. Such is producer life, which is actually perfect because today's guest is Maggie Matusio-Flynn, a producer and communications director who I instantly had a soul connection with. This episode is jam-packed. We talk about addiction, spirituality, her journey through creativity, and her career working in film and television and how she transitioned out of it. Overall, this conversation is about reinvention and intuition, two things that every creative needs. Oh, and if you've seen Spotlight, Ugly Betty, or Gotham, you'll probably find this episode even more interesting. Enjoy. Welcome to the Unplugged Creative, a podcast that explores the weird, wild, and wonderful things creatives go through to do what they love. I'm your host Arielle Zadok, and this is the place to be reminded that wherever you are, you're exactly where you're meant to be. Well, I guess let's do this, huh? Let's do it. Welcome let's to the, the show, it. Maggie. Cheers. I'm so excited. Cheers with our manifestation tea. Oh, it's very hot, but it's good.
1: It is good. <laughs> Delicious dish.
0: Well, I don't often get to... In- well, first of all, I've never interviewed in- anyone in my house before, so this is exciting. But I don't get to interview people in person too much. So I'm excited that I get to look at your beautiful face in person while we do this. I feel
1: the same way <laughs> from, from the moment we met. Your yes. glowing aura.
0: Super kindred spirits. As we discussed when we did meet, I, I don't think we knew anything about each other at all. I just knew one of our mutual friends was like, you two need to
1: meet. You're both creative. Here you go. And it was just this wonderful gift. Yep. And then it took a little bit of time to get us together. But the moment we met, I I think we, I mean, it was a busy coffee shop, but we locked eyes and it was like, hello. Oh, it's you.
0: Exactly. (laughs) So you have been on a creative journey for a long time, but it took a long time for you to actually see that as a creative journey.
1: Yeah, I think I was always creative as a child. I used to make up jokes, or I remember having a, an art project that was slash English project where I created a whole box of me. And I remember feeling really gratified as a child. And I did go to college for copywriting and advertising, but my journey took me a, a different way. I think when we're younger... We can be fostered to do creative things or we could be fostered to make money. And it depends on what kind of background you come from. I came from a background of mostly creatives, but they all had day jobs. They all used creativity as a, as a hobby as opposed to a money-making opportunity. So. Which I
0: think is also very old school because it was always the starving artist. And I joke even for me that I got into production because I didn't want to be a starving actor. Meanwhile, I wound up as a starving PA.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've been there too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Luna bars and cigarettes. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, now they have things like cliff bars. I wish I had that, you know, yeah. fifteen years ago. <laughs> yeah, it
1: depends on the budget, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Taking home that
1: crafty. <laughs> Every day.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's but you know, that's the difference I think between then and now in a way, because now we live in an atmosphere where people are all around us making money off their creativity and that's that's the thing. That's what they do. And I guess in advertising agencies and that was more the money making thing. But traditionally I think What you and I were taught is always starving artist versus stable job. Stability versus starving.
1: Yeah. I mean, I had my first job at 11. I was babysitting. And I couldn't imagine a child today starting to care for another child at 11. Mm -hmm. It seems like a lot of responsibility. Yeah, you know, I mean, we've talked about this before. We come from hardworking families that wanted to provide education. And that was the goal was to provide an education for their children. And they did that quite successfully. Mm -hmm. And so there became almost um, this unwritten pact between my parents and myself that I was always going to work hard and they were never going to have to support me. Yeah, Uh, There was going to be a time where they gave me my education and they helped me and they gave me a beautiful childhood. But at 21 or, well, 23 in my case, when I graduated, (laughs) that was it. The, the gravy train ended, and I became the conductor.
0: And what was that like for
1: you in that transition? I mean, it's so scary. But, you know, with a, with a work ethic, I always worked. And I, at that age, was battling alcohol addiction. So it was even more scary to hold down a job, um, to get up in the morning and go to work, to give the appearance that everything was okay. You know, and I think that's another realm of creativity is like how do I hide oh yeah what's going on or this demon inside of me or this inability to control the way that I use drugs or alcohol and make it seem like I am a healthy well-rounded caring human being everything my parents think I am everything yeah everything that I was raised to be Mm -hmm. you know all of those values that are instilled in us from childhood from our grandparents from our parents yeah When did the alcoholism start? Not until I hit college. So I had written a paper in high school that I won an award, a health award for about alcohol addiction and homelessness in Boston. And I didn't drink in high school. I didn't start drinking until actually the summer before I went to college. All of my friends drank or used drugs and I abstained because my uncle suffered from alcoholism. And I saw the damage that that can do to Mm -hmm. a family and to everyone around us. So I said, okay, I'm not going to drink. And I think that that was the universe. It was a gift, you know, that I was able to not drink in high school. I was a cheerleader. All the cheerleaders drank. But, uh, you know, I was not going to do that. I wanted to do things differently. And then when you get to college, everybody drinks. There's not a person that doesn't drink. And Mm -hmm. then in America, you have this ridiculous drinking culture where everyone gets drunk. It's not blackout drunk. Like every time you Mm -hmm. drink, as opposed to in Europe, my husband's from Dublin. They don't really do that. Drinking and the pub is a social environment. It's You're meant to sip a pint, so that way you can stay there longer and have conversations and talk about philosophy or... Mm. (laughs) you know, talk about music or, or other things. Uh, whereas in America, it's like, how many shots can you do in an hour?
0: Yeah, of, of the toughest liquor, of yes. the worst tasting stuff, yes. of the hardest stuff. And yeah, it's, it's a much different culture. And when I lived in New Zealand, they have a big drinking culture there as well. They're also the binge drinkers and the blackout drunk and all of that. And there was a period, not that I ever had alcoholism or anything like that, but I stopped drinking alcohol for a long time, the the last year that I was there. And it's always, oh, my God, what's wrong? Are you sure? you sure? You want to drink? You want to drink. Are you okay? What's wrong? What's wrong? Are you okay? What's happening? It's like, dude, I just don't need to drink.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's great marketing and advertising from alcohol companies. right? Uh, You know, that – that there's something wrong if you don't drink.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So So you started drinking in college, and how long was it before you realized that it was a problem? Or maybe you didn't even realize it was a problem, but how long
1: was it before it actually became a problem? Not until my second semester of senior year. So when I was... You know, I've never had a problem being heard ever in my life. This is wonderful. Well, not
0: just because you're turning your head No, like it's, so, uh, it's progress. Let me do this in the most awkward way possible while you're in the midst of an important story. I oh, know. Because it's, this uh, no, is just it's ridiculous. This is this is the na- <laughs> the nature of I love it. figuring it out. Uh, I'm s- it's in so, a so space. impressive. <laughs> it really is. I
1: mean, I know you're a producer, and as a produ- as a fellow producer, we can do anything. We can. Um, so it's, but it is very impressive.
0: Um, yeah. Thanks. You're welcome.
1: <laughs> uh, the drinking became a problem during my senior year, so it sort of was a buildup, and then something traumatic happened to me where. Um, probably sophomore year. And I was able to pull it together for junior year. And then the second semester of my senior year, I met a man that would allow me to explore the darkest depths of my addiction. Mm. And it wasn't that he, I don't think he was, had malintent, but it was just that perfect combination of a relationship where we brought out the worst in each other. And so that began probably when I was 21, just before I turned 22, and lasted until I was 27.
0: That's a long time to be in a toxic relationship.
1: It's a long time to be in a toxic relationship with a really bad alcohol problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: During that time, what were you doing? Where were you? And what did you... Get your degree in? Was there an intention to work in a creative field or a production field mm-hmm. or advertising? Okay.
1: Yeah. So I went to BU for mass, uh, the College of Mass Communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, my concentration was advertising and anthropology.
0: Mm, interesting.
1: Yes. Uh, I loved it. I loved anthropology. I loved studying people and I loved copywriting. It was one of my favorite, favorite things to do. Um, but because I think of my tendency for or or my predisposition for for addiction which I believe we're born with a genetic makeup that predisposes us to that and it's on a spectrum I don't think it's like you're you know you're automatically the worst alcoholic or addict there Mm -hmm. is I think it kind of varies but I loved making up ad campaigns and all of that so but I did not understand how to take that education and make it a career I had a few angels along the way that would help me. Like I had a friend in college um, my junior and senior year that got me an internship with a PR company that was paid, that was amazing. He, I forget the name of it, but he was a rock journalist in the 60s and 70s in Whoa. Boston. And he had seen Bob Dylan and the Stones in uh, a club that no longer exists called the Skeller in Boston yeah, in heard Kenmore of that. Square. And so I worked for him for a semester and it, he was amazing. He was so wonderful and gave me so many skills that I use now, but I didn't know how to transfer them into a job when I graduated. And I took the six-year plan. I took two years to graduate. But in the interim, I was able to secure a job at a law firm called Greenberg-Troreg. And if you know any, if you've seen Spotlight, that movie is based on Eric McLeish and Bob Sherman who spearheaded the cases against the Catholic Church in the early 2000s. And I was the admin slash receptionist for the law firm. So I worked there for about a year, and I worked there during the cases against the Catholic Church.
0: Which is so funny when I found that out, because I had watched the movie Spotlight literally days before I met you. I think it was like two nights before or something like that. I watched that movie, and I really didn't know too much about it. I didn't even, I mean, I I never know what anything is about when I watch a movie. Good, that's good. Okay, great. Yeah, I like to be surprised and I like to have the experience that the director and the writer intended. So to find things out and introduce characters and situations as the creators intended. That's just my thing. So yeah, I watched that and then I met you and I was like, oh my God, this is, that's, (laughs) first of all, super serendipitous. Second of all, so wild. What an experience. Yeah. And you were also... An alcoholic at this time. Yeah. In Fresh the out of college. Of an addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that and how you were managing being at a law firm, which I think anyone who knows modern addiction would understand and agree that there are a ton of top level professionals who are highly addicted to opioids, who are alcoholics, who are highly addicted to cocaine, all these things. So Mm -hmm. this is not necessarily an uncommon thing, which is another reason why I want to know your perspective of it.
1: Yeah. I think that, again, having that strong work ethic and um, the shame associated with being a 23-year-old young woman and having the inability to control her, how much she can consume or because for me, it was mostly alcohol. That was my story. I'm so grateful for that. Um, mm. I couldn't really afford anything else. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> It does get expensive. Let's be honest. But you know, it's always been, I've always been happiest when I'm holding space for people. So whether that's inviting people over and ha- cooking dinner for them or or having friends over, or being at the playground and just sitting in a circle and talking and laughing has always been given me the greatest pleasure. And as you know, as a copywriter, I love words. And so I love to talk. And so being around lots of people and being able to watch a man that has been robbed of his innocence at a young age by an organization that is meant to instill faith and spirituality in them and I believe all human beings make mistakes I'm not challenging the Catholic Church I'm not I don't have a political stance on it because I was able to see the humanity mm-hmm. and people as human beings and I know that the, the people that were in a position of power made a grave mistake yeah. um, but to watch these men come in and to just smile and hug them and try to bring sunshine to a, a very cloudy day when they're going in and being asked to talk about memories that are very painful that they may have squashed down for oh, decades. Yeah. yeah.
0: A lot of them probably didn't even realize that these things had happened to them or that these memories existed until they hit their
1: 30s or later or that often happens with trauma like that. Yeah. They go through counseling and mm-hmm. then, um, you know, they, these memories come back up. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, to be able to make them laugh or smile kept me going. You know, I really loved that job. I really, really loved that job until it ended and I moved on. It was wonderful holding space for them. I have a letter from Bob Sherman to me from one of the victims. And that's something that I think later on when I did get sober, I would reread to myself to remind myself that that I do have a self-esteem, that I am a good person, that there is a heart in there and that my creative gift at that time and my gift at that time was to make other people happy. Yeah. And I don't know, I mean that's that's all we're really here for anyway, is for love. So mm. That was quite an experience. I mean, I was the first person to hold the documents. I remember being on the news and getting like chastised for wearing a denim jacket, but fashion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like a but denim fashion. jacket with jeans.
0: Yeah. You're like, I don't know, Canadian tux- tuxedo. That's right. I was trying to be Britney at the Grammys. <laughs> That's right. It was probably around that time, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. She's another story of addiction and and getting locked up in all of it. And it it's so easy to judge and... Look, my brother is an addict and, you know, he's been going through that for however many years at this point, over 20. And it's so easy to judge and it's so easy to put blame. And not that I haven't done that. I've absolutely done that because at certain points it is a choice to get better or to continue down the path. Mm-hmm. And it's such a, it's such a weighted thing for yeah. every single person involved in that person's life whether it's a sister, a partner, a parent, a coworker
1: it's it's such a there there is no black and white. No, with it's an emotional tornado mm. and I think that um you know, I've never met an alcoholic that wasn't a wonderful human being underneath it all, behind yeah. the addiction. You know, they they really do want to be helpful and they want to Be kind for the most part. You know, I mean, everybody has their spectrum of level of kindness. But it's been my experience that most people that I've met that have been able or been lucky enough to recover Mm. do miraculous things with their lives.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And there's no, I will never know the depth of that darkness. I won't because I'm not an addict and I haven't been there. I will never know what it's like to be that low and to bring myself out of that. I will never have that sense of confidence. I will never have that experience. So that is something that I so, so, I'm like getting emotional right now, (laughs) but that's just something that I so highly respect in people because that, I mean, to be able to face your demons in such a way, because that's essentially what it is, right? To get out of the addiction, you have to face your demons. And those demons, we all have darkness, but I think when it's wrapped up in addiction, it allows it to go even darker. And a lot of it isn't even true. Most of it isn't even true darkness. It's the bullshit that our brains are doing to us anyway, plus the bullshit of addiction and all these things. So to be able to pull yourself out of that is something that I so deeply and highly respect and that I under, I know that I will never understand. I will never have that perspective of what that is. So
1: fucking kudos. Thanks. It's bananas. (laughs) It's bananas. You know, I mean, I'm coming up on 13 years sober and I think about it and, um, you know, I died and, and was reborn, you know, and I think that's what it is. And I do think that people can understand that, that action, I mean, I think that's part of what your show's all about is that this rebirth of the creative, right? Mm. Of this, I like to call myself a renaissance bitch. And I know that's not always like it's sort of teetering on the line of being a good feminist and not being a good feminist. But the ability to reinvent yourself is so freeing and it's so wonderful and it's so exciting. Mm. And to be able to do that in a way that is beyond my wildest dreams is definitely because of my journey in sobriety and my journey from darkness, to semi-darkness, to the mouth of the cave, to this world where it knows no bounds, you know, like you can do anything. And I think that that can apply to anybody. don't think you have to go through the depths of darkness to do that. I think you have to really harness the voice within yourself that tells you that you're enough. Mm. You know what I mean? That, That your ideas are good, that you are enough, and that you have a gift that nobody else on this planet has to give, mm. because everyone is an individual. And let that gift be heard, because you never know that, you know, so that smile that when I, I would give these guys that would come into greenberg Troig, just a smile, change the perspective of their day. Like that was what the letter was about, was that because I was warm and welcoming, because I would get up from my chair, come around to the front desk, sometimes hug them if they wanted to, but just smile at them and say, how is your day going? What did you do today? How are your children? Mm. The fact that I genuinely cared about their well-being changed their perspective and changed their experience in what would have been a devastating situation. And that's all we have to do for each other is to show each other love and kindness Mm. To help promote, like my mantra, my personal mantra is love and prosperity for myself and for everybody around me and for the world, like on a global level, love and prosperity because there's enough pie for everybody.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there absolutely is. And I think as creatives, especially, it's so easy to think, well, there, there's already a copywriter. There's already a producer. There's already a director. There's already, there's already, there's already, there's, whatever. All of that is bullshit. There is enough to go around, mm-hmm. but you have to be brave enough or forget your forgetting your fear enough to just show up anyway. Yeah. Because half of it, more than half of it, is just showing up. It's just showing up. That's it. Definitely
1: 100, 100% yeah. of film and television is showing up. Yeah. You and I both know that. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. It is. It's just showing up because, you know, there are some people in this world that are so fiercely talented but they stay behind closed doors. And then there are other people that are really not that talented, but because
1: they're bulldogs, they're there and they're yeah, succeeding. But they're, but whatever they're offering speaks to somebody. So of that's course. really what yeah. it is. It's like knowing, it's that, that retelling yourself that, okay, what I have to offer, what I have to share will speak to somebody. And yeah. if it's just one person, it, it's – what is that from? I know I'm not being original here. If you can touch one person – Oh, that's definitely a thing. Right. I don't know where it's from, but it's definitely a thing. But it's a thing. If you can just touch one person, if you can change one person's life, Mm -hmm. that could have been the difference between them living and dying. Yeah. And you don't even – you don't know that. When you donate blood, when you donate to Red Cross, when you smile at a stranger on the street, you don't know if they were like having a bad day and they were suicidal and you smiling at them, Mm -hmm. you know, reignited their faith in humanity. Yeah. I mean, that's really what started, I think – really started my creative journey. So I got sober at 27 and I hit my rock bottom in San Francisco. I was working in New York and I decided to follow the toxic relationship to San Francisco, to Oakland specifically. And I had aspirations of like trying out working in advertising because it's like a Mecca there. Yeah. And I was working as like a production assistant at a commercial music video and and commercial company in New York. And I left that job. I flew to San Francisco pretty much in a blackout. And tried. I, I tried applying for jobs in advertising, but I didn't have a book. The book that I had had was like at that point... I don't know, seven years old. And it was created at BU. And everybody now had digital books, right? Because when I finished college, it was like the floppy disk and like the zip drive. Mm -hmm. And then seven years later it was a thumb drive. (laughs) You're like, what is this thing? Exactly. And I had none of that. (laughs) That was all sort of lost on me. And so I ended up getting a job at Starbucks. And Starbucks was, it's a wonderful company. The people that work there are phenomenal. They are caring. They are community oriented. But I, I, while I was there, I sold this like $300 cappuccino maker that wasn't even for sale. Oh my God. Yeah. So my training ha- had not failed me, but it was out of helping. Like there was a person that would come in that would always complain about how their cap- they needed their cappuccino, but it was so expensive or the price was this or that. And And out of a desire to help that person, I shared with them my secret trick from when I was a bartender in New York to make cappuccinos. Right there and then, she was like, that is a huge investment. In a year of having that machine, I will save the money that I spend every day on cappuccinos. Easily. So... Shortly thereafter, I decided that, that was not, this was not my beautiful life in San Francisco and yeah. that there was more. And I'm not really sure. In the program of recovery that I am in, they talk about having a white light experience, like a spiritual mm. experience that you have where there is a voice that is not your own that lets you know this is not the life that you're supposed to be living. And shortly thereafter, I moved back east and I moved back to New York. Were to you work. in
0: a program at that point?
1: No. Okay. So this was all the journey to get Got sober. And I had sort of dabbled in film and television. Mm-hmm. I had a woman that like was my PA-ing mentor. Like and stuff? Actually, um, no, I'm glad you said that because I'm a little, I'm jumping a little too much. I had an aunt that lived in New York and she had a beautiful converted glass factory. And mm-hmm. so I moved to get away from the toxic relationship to move to New York And at that point, this was a year before I moved to San Francisco, he was moving to San Francisco to pursue a now legal career in growing marijuana, medicinal marijuana. And so I moved to New York to get away from him. And I got a job working at a bar around the corner from my aunt's house. And one of my regular customers would come in and she saw me do that very same trick of the ice and the cappuccino and the milk to make Several cappuccinos in a very short amount of time. And she then said, You should work in film and television. And I <laughs> s- laughed and I was like, Okay. And I rolled my eyes. And then she got me an interview and I got my first job in film and television, working as a PA at first for Full Frontal Fashion, which was a one week show showcasing Fashion Week in New York. And it was Rainbow Media and it was in Midtown and it was actually a really very cool job but because i was the only one that passed the drug test i got promoted to coordinator very quickly
0: so funny because you at the time were an alcoholic right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you passed the drug test so you got the raise or, yes. you know the- yeah
1: because nobody else did everybody mm. else was either smoking weed or other drugs and, and i passed
0: the interesting thing is that i would probably put money on at least a couple of those people we're just casually smoking weed. It's not like they were addicted or yeah, no had was a problem, a mess. you know? No one and, was a mess. meanwhile, you're the one that got the job. So just interesting.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. It's
0: also your fate. I mean, you were supposed to do yes. that. That was absolutely your path. So yes. there's a reason why, for sure. Yes. But it's when you reflect on that, it's like, oh,
1: OK. Yes, And believe it, I mean, you know, in film and television, there are a lot of high functioning alcoholics, Mm, um, high
0: functioning, everything.
1: Yes. So that's how I started my career in film and television. And then I left that to go to San Francisco Mm -hmm. and then I came back.
0: And what was it that made you come back to New York? what was what was the final straw for you leaving that
1: relationship? Oh, it's very funny. It's very trivial. Uh, somebody had consumed all of my vodka, and we'd gotten back from a trip at eleven o'clock at night and all of the liquor stores were closed. And I wanted a drink because I was very stressed. It was a very toxic relationship with a lot of like complicated details. but, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted a drink to relax, and somebody had consumed all of my alcohol, and so I flipped, and I waited until three in the morning, California time, and called my mom, and she sent me a plane ticket.
0: Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did your mom know that you were an alcoholic? Did she recognize yes. that? Okay. Yeah, yeah,
1: of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had to. I moved back in with them, and I was trying to go to meetings and get sober, and... um. And I, th- you know, like both sides of the family had alcoholism, mm. you know, they, they were peppered. I mean, I feel like everybody has it. Yeah. There's not one person on this planet that hasn't been touched by addiction, whether <laughs> it's them personally that yeah. that are struggling or a family member. I mean, it baffles me the way that. The world handles addiction, it still has shame oh, yeah. attached to it. And it um, shouldn't, because
0: if we didn't have shame, then people wouldn't be as far down the spiral
1: as they get. Well, I mean, it's about holding space for people. Yeah. So when you put shame attached to somebody, somebody wants to hide it rather than get better.
0: Exactly. It perpetuates a cycle yeah. of continuing to go down and down and down. Yeah, it's so heavy. Yeah, no, I agree. I talked about this on another show with uh, an artist, Becky Buke. She was one of the earlier episodes, and we spoke about embracing the darkness and embracing your shadows. And if we were even a little bit more comfortable talking about the shit, then we would be able
1: to create space for people. Exactly what you're talking yeah, about. To identify, to mm-hmm. be like, you know what? I'm not the only one. There are other people. I mean, if you look back on humanity, they talk about like loving your neighbor, right? Like mm-hmm. religion really was put into place so that they could keep the masses yeah like organized right Central. to like to keep society before police officers all of that stuff mm-hmm. to keep everybody kind of in check right yeah. and you know you talk about like loving your neighbor you don't have to like them you don't have to agree with them but like showing people compassion is really where we all need to be right now mm-hmm. maybe we'll backtrack so I came back from San Francisco and my sobriety journey started yeah so I started to get sober and so my career started to unfold in a great way this microphone stand just I love it it's <laughs> like, <There's> like so- <laughs> not only am I holding space but I'm holding your microphone I love it people it's are theme. just gonna hear all this like little
0: zhuzhing that I'm doing throughout the episode which probably my editor is gonna nobody's take it out nobody's going but- <laughs> to hear anything but the sound it's of like- your
1: amazing voice that's you sound all great too by the way thank you years um, of smoking yes um <laughs> I quit I quit Smoking is bad. It still looks cool as hell. So I moved back to New York. And once I was able to really focus on sobriety and stay sober and stay away from a drink, I was able to excel in the career path that unfolded for me. Mm. So I had dreams and aspirations of writing. I... Identify myself as a writer, as a copywriter, as a poetry poet, as a poetress. Wow! Ooh, did I, I just like make that. up words. You just made that up, and I that's really a band dig name. <laughs> poetress. Ooh, <laughs> poetress. Yeah. It's like Flowetry from the nineties. Oh um, that was a good band. You should I check like it out. that. Yeah. Um. And then I started working as a, a production assistant and production coordinator, and I did it. I did industrials and commercials for a year and a half to two years, and then I started to production assistant on unionized film and television. And mm-hmm. as you know, production assistants don't have a union. They're paid a day rate when it's a little bit different now. But when you and I started back when they still used film. Yeah. Oh, I remember those days. You were paid a day rate and that was like a 16 hour day. Yeah. You were paid a flat rate.
0: Oh, that's still And happens. you were given
1: lunch, which mm-hmm. was really wonderful. Mm-hmm. And you started to make money because there was no opportunity for you to spend money because you would work. You would get up at three in the morning, four in the Mm -hmm. morning, go to work, get home at 11 or 12 at night and to do it all over again. So there was no opportunity to spend any money, Mm -hmm. which then you kind of get into that cycle. And if you show up, you get promoted and you start to, as a PA, you start to figure out which department that you'd like to go into, what makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I worked on duplicity. I worked on Naked Brothers Band. I was uh, an executive assistant to Albie Hecht, who was the creator of Naked Brothers Band or the executive producer, I should say. And I believe he was the executive producer of SpongeBob SquarePants. But I worked with him after he had left Nickelodeon Mm -hmm. when he had started his own company. He was a wonderful man. It was not the right job for me. But conveniently, it was during the writer's strike. So I was able to work through that. And then I left and began freelancing again. And I got a job with someone that became one of my mentors working on a pilot called can openers that never saw the light of day, (laughs) which a lot of jobs don't see the light of day. most of them
0: don't. Most pilots don't ever see the light of day.
1: Yes. And then that led to Ugly Betty, Mm -hmm. which that's how I started to grow. So I became a PA and then a production secretary and then an assistant coordinator. And from there, I was able to work consistently and to keep moving up the ladder to work with wonderful people. The cast of Ugly Betty was beyond phenomenal. Judith Light is all the hype that you believe she is. She is one of the kindest human beings I've ever met. So is uh, Vanessa Williams. Mm. I had the opportunity to work with her later in my career. And uh, when I was working on Ugly Betty, I married a man that I didn't know very long that still is my husband to this day. He was really the first time I started to listen to my spiritual intuition was when I met him I knew I was going to marry him and Mm -hmm. I just went with it and nine months after the night that we met we married and he was living in Dublin during most of that time yeah it was really wild but Vanessa remembered his name and she remembered that I got married and it was just there were wonderful things about working in film and television and that's really what I was able to do to move past the things that weren't great, the working for people that yelled at you, the working for people that said inappropriate things to you about your body or what they mm. want to do with those things on your body. Or and
0: trying to do
1: those things with your body. Yes. Or the people that scream at you and mm-hmm. make you feel less than or the people that you work for that put in the time but didn't really have the brains behind Mm, it to have the job they had. And then you have to pick up the pieces. You're doing double work because you're doing their job and your job. Yes. Mm -hmm. And all of those things that come along with it that ultimately propelled me to leave unionized film and television, to leave that sort of system. But I learned so many wonderful lessons and I met so many wonderful human beings that are filled with light and love and have become friends of mine that have supported this new career path that I'm on, this rebirth of the creative that was there so long ago that, you know, just needed time.
0: Yeah. And before we move on to that, because I do want to hear about that because you are doing some super interesting things. Production, as we're saying, is a very toxic environment if you choose to see it that way. It's also in an incredible environment. It's electric, it's love, it's connection, it's creativity, it's collaboration, it's the fucking bee's knees <laughs> it's cool it's definitely one of
1: those pinch me i've got this job how mm-hmm. did i get here like
0: how am i getting paid to play for a living this is amazing yeah and that's not something to ever take
1: lightly or let go of that's definitely no it's not really play it's just the it's it's, it's the feeling that you get because you can swear on set mm. you can wear jeans and sneakers every day you yeah. can go for a cigarette break and nobody's going to micromanage you about yeah. that mm-hmm. you can um eat delicious food for free like all the time yeah
0: because you aren't allowed to leave, but whatever.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the only reason we get paid. It's because we can't leave. Rob Reiner said, always take time to go to the bathroom though. That's very important. Oh yeah, I always do. Especially <laughs> as an AD, important. I'm like, very where's important. my break? Cause I'm not going to get a bladder <laughs> infection because of this
0: shoot. Let me tell you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so how was it for you managing being sober, becoming sober, going on that journey when Production, truly, there's rap parties. There are people drinking before the day is done sometimes. There, there are drug
1: addicts working for oh, you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you find their needles.
0: Yeah. Yeah, So absolutely. how is that experience for you as you're going through your own transition and trying to continue to battle your own demons or just keep them on the low? Not on the low, but, you know, keeping me under control.
1: I mean, do you have a book that you read that you identified with every page and it just made you so grateful? So that's what working in film and television was. Mm. And because I was given the gift to stay sober, I was given a community and in the form of the program that I practiced Mm -hmm. that upheld me that um, wasn't afraid to give me constructive criticism about my character defects and like was able to do it in a loving way that so that I could physically hear them Mm -hmm. as opposed to this is wrong this is wrong you're doing that wrong yeah or you're too loud or shut up or nobody wants to hear you or like things like that because you have some such a strong support network you can really do anything like that's really what it is is if you create a community that fosters the light within you There's nothing to do but shine.
0: Oh my God. That's a little quote that's definitely going on. I'm like, (laughs) I might post that today because that is so beautiful.
1: But that's what it is. You want to be the light. And so, even though there were dark times within my journey and my career, and I sacrificed a lot of time, I was given these nuggets of these human beings that made a difference. So, like, you have this beast that is awful that you hate working with or that your personalities don't mesh. And that beast could be a really good person. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But like when you're working with somebody for 17 hours or 16 hours a day, if that personality doesn't mesh with your personality, they become a beast for you.
0: Yeah, You know what I mean?
1: Mm -hmm. But then you're able to really look within. And then you're able to really say, okay, am I doing the right thing? And being sober in that environment, I wanted to – be the power of example, personally. Because I love helping people, because I love holding space for people, I wanted to say, hey, like I know it's hard and I know that at the end of the day, like for you going home and drinking two bottles of wine is how you decompress. But guess what? There's like another thing you can do. Like you can go meet up with other people that have suffered the same Mm -hmm. and talk about it. Or you can go do karaoke without drinking or Mm -hmm. you can go for a walk. You know, when I wasn't working, and I was fortunate enough. My I lived with my aunt. I rented a space from her when I moved to Brooklyn because I didn't have a lot of money. I had like, I think, $100 in my bank account when I moved to New York. I had wow. nothing. I had nothing. I mean, I was newly sober. I, I had nothing. Yeah.
0: And, and you basically ran away from the toxic relationship. It sounds like you just kind of up and left and that was that.
1: No, no, but... It was a point where I said, okay, I've got to create distance mm-hmm. because this is not going to be good for me. And I can't do this. I became addicted to that as well. You can be addicted yeah. to like everything. Anything, yeah. Anything and it does everything. does not oh just God. mean. Yeah. So I wanted to show people that there was another way. I wanted to let them know that they could, you know, be surrounded by love. I mean, I love being a, a bright light. I love being a bright light. And I don't care who needs me. I'm there for them. Like, I want to hold space for people. It really does make me happy. Like, I remember when I was a little girl, and my little sister was a phenomenal soccer player. She went to college for it. And she didn't even try. Like, if she had tried, she probably could have been on a women's team. But she was just like, okay, I can like coast with with the skill that I have. And when we stopped fighting, (laughs) because we fought for a really long time too. But when we stopped fighting, and I was able to see her and she was able to see me. Her smile to this day brings tears to my eyes. Making her happy is, and I love my husband and I love my dog, but making her happy makes my heart explode. It's like the feeling like when I'm giving animals Reiki, mm-hmm. it's that same feeling. That's why I love doing it so much because you feel your heart explode and sometimes you start crying. Yeah. And you're in front of their owners. And they feel that same love. And so you're able to experience this deep connection without words, without a physical cord that is the breath of life. I feel like
0: that's how I am when I'm in the mountains. Even if I'm yeah. just driving around, I went with a friend this weekend to go buy this Jeep and we were near Big Bear and we were just driving around. And my heart was like exploding with joy, just being in the presence of these massive mountains, just being in the presence. And I was in a car, like who cares, but just having these things in my view. And that's why I'm so drawn to California and New Zealand and all these places, because it's like, that makes my heart explode and other things do too. But that is just the most recent time that I felt that, that I was like, oh my God, it's beating out of my chest. I almost can't breathe because it just being in this presence, and feeling it. And not even, you know, I was in a car. It's not even like I was touching the ground or anything like that, but it's just recognizing those things and I think giving it the space instead of just brushing over it makes it so much deeper and so much more impactful on your mind on your body on your soul when you can recognize oh my heart is so full right now hang on let me let me sit in this let me just be in this for a minute
1: what a great gift for yourself and for others mm. do you know what i mean yeah. like to be able to have that emotion to recognize that emotion to share it like you're sharing now and if especially what you're doing with And unplug creative, like sharing normal people's stories that have experienced great challenge to do what they love and to really embrace what they love gives hope to people. I mean, yeah, it is tear inducing. It is overwhelming and it is wonderful to experience that. Could you imagine going through life and never experiencing that emotion, never experiencing what it feels like to have your heart explode? Yeah. What it feels like to share that and be vulnerable enough mm-hmm. in front of another human being.
0: It's true. And so often we aren't able to feel those things because we're numbing the things that don't feel good. So the same way that we have to embrace what feels good and what makes our heart explode, we also have to embrace the things that
1: break our hearts completely. Yeah. No fear. No yeah. fear. Yeah. Like, it's bullshit. Just living without fear mm-hmm. is the greatest thing that you can do.
0: Yeah. I mean, look for the message in it because I don't want to say – throw it out the wayside because it's a natural element within ourselves mm-hmm. as as a warning sign for something, look into it and then say, fuck off. Okay. Yeah. I'm or gonna, move s- through it. Yeah. I'm going to see what emotions. I need to and that's fine. So I want to talk a little bit about this next phase of your creativity because it's taking on a whole new form and I love that because I think a lot of times we're so afraid to reinvent ourselves. And that's a lot of what we're talking about here, this reinvention and reinvention and reinvention. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and how that came about, how that was birthed. Yeah. The
1: $90,000 pay cut. Okay. Yeah. Because that's a big decision
0: and that's a (laughs) scary one. And I think it's worth talking about. That's a house.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, I had worked really hard and... Uh, was able to, I was offered the job to coordinate on Gotham. And Gotham is in its fifth season. I will give it a shout out. Their cast are my favorite human beings. Like they make my heart explode. They are filled with love. And I have some of the most wonderful friends as a result of working on that show. That show allowed me to step into my power and to shed the shit and give the career I'd worked so hard for—the middle finger—and mm. close the door on it. Yeah, well, I don't—I don't, I don't want to say actually close the door, put it on hold so I could do other things. So I got a call to coordinate. I was working on Person of Interest, and I got a call to coordinate for Gotham, and it was a 22 episode beast of a show. Uh, it was very big budget, a lot of special effects, a lot of stunts, a 15 person cast, and that's like the main cast. Yeah, it's an that ensemble. wasn't the 40 stunt people that you would have to deal with. Mm. And so as a coordinator, you are the third line of producer mm-hmm. in episodic. So you are dealing with all the cast contracts. You are assisting what's called the unit production manager who hires and runs the crew and the producer who basically hires and runs the cast. And so you are the third line of defense in that situation. And and it was hard. And I was not... Paid fairly. I was given a low rate. I was not told that I could have overtime until mid season. I was understaffed and I was losing my mind. But I loved the cast more than life itself. Like I loved all of them. They were all just, they were all individuals and they were all completely different, but they all were really good human beings. And I also had that in the back of my mind make your parents proud. Like you're making money. Like you've hit it. Like now. Now it's like coast. Mm. And I was struggling with it internally. I was miserable. I was crying. I had never had anxiety. Believe it or not, I did not drink because of anxiety. (laughs) I don't know why I drank because of a compulsion. Like there's no shyness about me. I still dance on tables. Yeah. I still can get up in front of a bar and sing. I did it in Dublin. My husband's mother made me. Like there's no (laughs)
0: inhibition here at all. I'm like that too. I don't need a drink to do. In fact, if I have a drink, I'm less likely to do those things because I'm sloppy and tired. Well, no, that wasn't me. Like I was stealing I'm the bet. mic from I'm people. Like, but... I just wanna take a nap. I'm like a drink and a half in and I'm loopy and I just want to go to sleep. That's nice. <laughs> yes.
1: That's nice. That's my next life or up in heaven. That's what I'll be doing. But um, you know, I experienced all of these challenges and my husband saw these things happen and I'm going to give a shout out to class pass at the end of the first season, I made it through and the producer's assistant, who is this lovely woman who now lives in London and she's a producer herself. She was really big on exercise and she's like, what about class pass? And I was like, what about class pass? And I joined it for a month and it changed my life. I started practicing yoga daily because it was affordable and because of a daily yoga practice. And I had toe dipped in yoga. I had gone to Iyengar from stress to relieve like stress in my neck and all of those things that you get when you're dealing with, television and film. So I started doing regular yoga, and then I started doing regular acupuncture. And I'd always been faithful. I went to Catholic school as a child. The nuns loved me. When we, when my parents moved us to the country from Boston, the nuns gave me a gold cross oh and asked my parents that they not ruin my beautiful faith. That's how I grew up. Yeah. And then I, I didn't like the girls that were at the Catholic church. So I became a Baptist. Oh, wow. At the age of nine. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. What a big choice to make at nine. I have no idea how it happened, Hmm. but the Baptist church that I attended in Groton, Massachusetts was lovely. I still have the Bible that the pastor's wife gave me, which was rose and leather bound. Wow. Yes, they were really nice people. So I did that for about three years, and then when my grandmother passed away, I was like, "I God would not do this," and I became a Buddhist for like a minute. And then my mom was like, "You can't burn incense in my house." And I was like, <laughs> "What is do you not mean?" A thing. <laughs> so there'd always been a spirituality within me, mm-hmm. and I think that that helped me get sober. To an extent, I believe in a, like a universal life force energy. I don't – sometimes I believe in God as like a being, but I don't know. It sort of changes every day for me, mm-hmm. and I love that it's fluid. Yeah. I love that there's no box that I put it in yeah. um, because it makes it all always present, right? Mm-hmm. So that fire, that trust in a higher power, whether it was the Atman, which is the soul that lives within your heart area and your solar plexus mm-hmm. in Ayurveda and – Hinduism, or God that you go visit every Sunday at church, or a higher power that you talk to every day, whatever it might be, or just the energy and beings that transfer of like, yeah, there's there's an energy, there's absolutely an energy when we're born, we are born and we are conceived with a spark. Mm, That's a fact. Mm -hmm. That's a scientific fact. Yeah. So at the end of year two, of Gotham, So Gotham season two, my husband forfeited his Christmas bonus so that I could take yoga teacher training in Brooklyn. And so I went through while working full time and did yoga teacher training mm. and then uh, simultaneously did Reiki training. And then I began to teach for the next year. And that spring was the first time I had been to LA and I knew I had to get my husband out here to, to see it. And so we booked a trip in 2016 and came out here. And when we went to Joshua Tree, I just knew. And like I knew I was going to marry my husband at that point, I think it was seven years pre- prior. I knew that we were supposed to live in LA and that this would be the place that would help me grow, that would help me find my voice, my creative voice, mm. and really help it flourish. And so we made the, we were like, okay. And when I went back to work at the end of June for Gotham, I started telling everybody, this is my last season. I don't care if Fox doesn't renew it or Warner Brothers doesn't get behind it. I'm done. I'm moving to LA. And we saved half of our paychecks to put money away. And and then we moved the next spring. And um, I had all intentions of just doing yoga and Reiki Mm -hmm. specifically when I came out here. But the universe had other plans for me. And another mutual friend of mine was working at a company that was like a digital media company. Mm -hmm. And she had suggested to their executive producer that I was coming out and that I was a crack producer and that she should snag me while, while her producer was on paternity leave. And the woman didn't follow through. And then a week later, my friend said it again and said, she's ju- she's finishing up on Gotham. You need to to snag her before somebody else does. And uh, coincidentally, that executive producer's husband was a writer on Gotham that I had been friends with. Oh and my gosh, had he had experience working with me in a producer kind of environment. Yeah, and that was that. And so I got this job that I didn't apply for as a digital media producer in a corporate environment, in a female run corporate environment. And I came out here and I and I I didn't really want to do it, but I felt like I had to do it. And I'm grateful because it allowed me to ground myself and it allowed me to learn skills, new skills. Like everything's an opportunity. There's yeah. never any lack of opportunity to learn. And I think that's really the trick of being a successful creator, is that you're always looking for an opportunity to learn, to be inspired, to grow, all of those things. And so I learned a lot of things. I met a lot of really great people and I was able to cultivate the things that I'm doing now. And all the while I was teaching. I teach at the climbing gym that's like on the property I live in because I can just walk yeah and teach. keep it simple I and like my that. students are the best human beings. climbers are like if surfers and yogis had a baby yeah that's they're so the true best. Mm-hmm. they're the best so at the end of 2017 I met this woman Rachel Marlowe and she is a freelance writer from Vogue she's very successful has had a long career I believe she started at the Tattler or the Daily Mail in the UK And then moved to New York and now currently works for Vogue and for herself. She's a brand consultant. She's an extremely talented, amazing person. And we had come together with another woman with this desire to create a platform for people that are in the wellness community to have a voice, to have a broad voice, to, you know, sort of shed the taboo around woo-woo things, Mm, right? Because we had all experienced it in a different way about how it could help us. Deal with cope, like to cope and stress and all of those things. And I think with organized religion, sort of the numbers declining
0: mm-hmm.
1: more so now than ever, we need something to give us faith, right? Yeah. To give us hope,
0: a new to make way us feel okay. Things. Yeah, yeah.
1: So we got together, and it ended up not working out with the third person. So Rachel and I co-founded the Deep Agency, which is this full service creative agency for wellness people. And we worked with people like Guru Jagat and Andy Scarborough of Crownworks. And then I sort of branch out and do the smaller clients that aren't so big, like Rama Institute or something like that. So mm-hmm. I'm working currently with a woman named Neil Van Lierop, who is from Amsterdam, who created these cards that are unbelievable. They're called Intercompass Cards. And they are positively motivated. So every message that you pull in this deck of cards is positively motivated. It is to help you find and see the light. Mm. So unlike tarot cards, where if you aren't really on top of like all of the meanings and all of the different ways to perceive the meanings... Mm-hmm. You can pull the death card and feel like, oh my God, You're like the
0: worst. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. When like really, I'm get it's hit rebirth. By a card. <laughs> yeah, it's just rebirth. Yeah, it's, it's just it's rebirth. actually a very good
1: card. <laughs> yes, it's the best card. To yeah, get. yeah, I agree. So she created a card that's artfully designed and aesthetically positive and amazing. So I've completely gone back to my training from college yeah. and using it to help people. Like that's where it was. It was like how can I find the hybrid of like using the skills I have and the ability to speak clearly and loudly to help people that might be finding finding it a little bit harder to do that. And so that's where the deep agency sort of happened for me. From that, I just started becoming like a think tank for things and Sometimes I would charge people and they would be able to pay and sometimes I would just give free advice and that was that. And being okay with that has been quite a journey. Like how do you find the balance between charging for your creativity and being helpful, right? Yeah, it's a fine line. It's a very fine line. And who gets... I mean, I guess being a producer, you have to read people. You have to read people. You have to read people. So I think that's been helpful. Mm -hmm. That skill has been applied to what I'm doing now. But I don't know. It sort of opened the floodgates for me to be creative. It gave me a little bit more time. I stopped producing things. Like I'll help friends that need help, but that's it. It's more about like being able to work with my friends than it is about the money. And then I came up with an idea to make a crystal infused phone case that's sleek and like not heavy. Which and is super cool. <laughs> you just gave
0: me one and I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah,
1: we made rose quartz and black tourmaline. Oh and God. for anybody that knows a little bit about crystals, rose quartz is really good for love and relationships. And it doesn't have to be romantic relationships. Yeah. It can just be work relationships mm-hmm. or relationships with strangers or with yourself or with yourself as well yeah yeah Yeah. rose quartz is I'm so excited about that yeah it's (laughs) you're gonna love it I think you really love it yeah it's one of my favorites and I'm I don't like pink per se but Mm -hmm. I like this pink yeah and then black tourmaline which is negative vibe blocking Mm -hmm. but also EMF blocking so it helps with the electromagnetic frequencies that your phone emits and it sticks to glass so once a month you can stick it to your window to charge up your crystals if you don't know about that everybody should be charging your crystals monthly or giving them a
0: salt bath full moon and they actually different crystals charge under different conditions so some of them are good for running water some of them is sunlight some of them is full moon some of them is new moon There's so, so much. There's so, so much. much. But, you know, the way that I approach crystals is look into their meanings, all that kind of stuff. But do what feels right for you and pull what feels right for you. Just use your intuition.
1: Yeah, you'll know. It's almost like a buzzing feeling in your Mm -hmm. hand. You feel it. It's really weird. But it was really kismet that I was able to co-create those with this... There's a woman, another Rachel, but she lives in London and we still have not met in person. We've spoken on the phone countless times and we email constantly, but she had already created the gooey material on the back of the case. So is our ma- like marriage and our cocktail of me being like, okay, let's put the energetically charged crystal dust in the back of your gooey epoxy material mm. to create this phone case. But I-, I can't explain why it happened. It was the universe brought us together at the right time and- she was able to hear me. That's how that got made. It was yeah. literally like two people meeting accidentally and poof, magic. Magic, yeah. Well, we are gonna wrap things up.
0: And the way that we wrap things up around here is that I ask you to give people a creative challenge, intention, challenge, whatever you wanna do. It can be something directly creative or it can be literally anything that you think of. It's just something for people to experience over the next couple of weeks.
1: I would say find a way to compliment either someone you know or a stranger once a day.
0: Oh, I love that. And
1: see how that changes your perspective.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that we're so often seeing the negative in ourselves and each other. So that is sure to bring a lot of light. Yeah.
1: You know, it's funny. And sometimes you do it and they're not expecting it. And it's Mm -hmm. like a stranger and they like, are like, are you going to hit me? Yeah. You're
0: like, no, I really like your jacket. Yeah. I love (laughs) doing that. I really do. And you know what? I think I think that was the challenge that my first guest had. No, hers was about photos, but we did talk about this exact thing of like, just compliment a stranger. If you see something that you like, don't keep it to yourself. Tell that person. It's going to make their day. You don't like what you were saying with a smile. You don't know what that's going to mean to that person. Mm -hmm. They may be into it. They may not be into it. Why hold that in? Yeah. Share that. Yep. Thank you so much for sharing yourself and your story. I adore you. You're just like this magical being.
1: And yes, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you for having me. And thank you for holding space for the community out in the world, the global community with your podcast. Thank you. Big things. Big things coming for you.
0: Oh, I I just want to keep talking to really interesting people. <laughs>
1: Great. That's You're doing it. it. You're That's winning. That's all I want to do. I just want to hang out with people that I dig. <laughs> You're winning. Yeah, That's yeah. That's it. Setting that intention. It's here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Head on over to theunpluggedcreative.com to check out the show notes and link up with each week's creative. If you're digging this show, I would totally love it if you left me a five-star review on iTunes. That's going to help people learn about this show and probably help other creatives say yes to doing it who don't actually know me yet. Special thanks to James Granger for his original music. I'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Until then, keep on that creative path of yours. You never know where it might lead.